Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. We are in uh, Mark chapter 16. I am going to read verses 10 to 16. We know what we're here to celebrate. We know that He came to Jerusalem, he entered the city triumphantly, a few days later he was betrayed by one of his disciples, he went through what was a travesty of justice, but was actually a regular way that trials in that day went about, except on the Jewish end, and when the Jewish leaders handed him over to the Roman authorities, because they, they could execute him, but they wanted him executed in a way that was as publicly shameful as possible, which would be crucifixion, and the Jews were not allowed to do that, and the Romans were allowed to do that under a charge of treason kind of thing. And so that's why they said that he made himself to be Caesar, he made himself to be the next king, and of course we know that Pilate tried to do everything he could do to let Jesus walk out, but bowing to the political pressure of the people and not wanting to start a riot, he had him executed. And we know that what was happening there was the fulfillment of all of God's promises, that the sin of his people would be punished not by God punishing us, but by God punishing a substitute, a lamb, a perfect spotless sacrifice, his own son. And so Christ died in our place for our sins. He died. His body was placed in a tomb. It's noted that some of the women who were there caring for Him on the cross also followed to His burial, noted where He was. And then on the day after the Sabbath, on a Sunday, they went to take care of His body. And that's where we find ourselves in Mark Chapter 16. Now, one of the, uh, as we look at the resurrection and the glories of it and the beauties of it, one of the things you might note is if you read the resurrection accounts, how if you take note of what did Jesus actually do when he was raised? And think of it like this it's graduation season. What do you do when you're graduating from high school? You tell everybody, you plan a party, you send out invitations. Uh, now we do Facebook invites, and you make the news known, you get a bunch of pictures taken and hand them out that everybody loses and nobody pays attention to after a little while after you've spent hundreds and hundreds of dollars on it, right? We make these things known, or if you're going to get married, it's a big deal, you invite everybody, you make it widely known, and Christ didn't do any of that. All he did was go to dinner with his disciples And then do you know what he did at dinner with his disciples? He rebuked their sin. (laughs) It's pretty crazy. He's resurrected from the dead. First one ever. And he doesn't go on like a worldwide speaking tour. He doesn't send out heralds in front of him. He comes to his disciples at a private, quiet dinner. And even then, he doesn't make it this huge celebration, he rebukes their sin. But he does it for a 
a purpose. He's preparing them to be sent out in the world to proclaim this gospel. The gospel of forgiveness of sins. So I hope that as we look at what Christ actually did on the day he was raised, it would be helpful to us to see how he aims to use you. He aims to make your life of importance in this world. But he does it in a way that we often may not enjoy always. And that he did it at the dinner table. Let me read Mark 16, 10 to 16. Then we'll pray and then we'll look at Christ's quiet Easter. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest. But they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who, had, who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world to proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Let's ask God's help. Father, may the meditations of our hearts and the words of our mouth be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Christ's revelation of himself after his resurrection to his disciples isn't immediate. He first reveals himself to Mary and then sends her to tell them, and then it's noted, but they would not believe her. Then a short time later, two disciples are leaving Jerusalem, walking the seven miles to another town. It says here that they're walking out into the country, and he reveals himself to those two. Now, these aren't two of the eleven. These are Two of the nameless ones here in Mark were given one name in another gospel. Here they're nameless. Two of the larger group of those who had followed Jesus, not, not one of the eleven, two nameless disciples. He appears to them and they go back and tell the eleven and it's noted, but they didn't believe them. And so in a strange way, after Christ does this incredible work on the cross of bearing our sins and dying this most shameful, terrible death and goes into the grave and three days later walks out of it. How he acts after his resurrection, what he does after his resurrection is rather anticlimactic. It's something of a letdown. It's like the punchline of a joke being terrible. You would think he would do something more than just appear to a formerly demon-possessed woman, and then two nameless disciples walking out in the country. And at least a Tucker Carlson segment or get on Joe Rogan or something. In fact, you see this in all the other Gospels. In Matthew, he appears to Mary, and then to the eleven we read. In Luke, he appears to Mary, Joanna, and the other Mary, and then two disciples, and then all disciples. In John, we see Mary, and then that really wonderful dinner along the shore to Peter and John where he forgives Peter and then to the disciples and then to Thomas who is doubting him. And so what for? Why is he doing it like this? If you can slow down with the text, what's going on here? We can see a few things. One, he really loves his people. 
He loves his own. It's not that he doesn't have love for the rest of the world, but he loves his own people. And the one thing that he wants to do after his resurrection, before his ascension, is go and be with his people, especially his 11. So I wonder if that's helpful to you this morning. That Christ is not the kind of Savior when he gets big, when he does that which has never been done before and could have worldwide fame immediately if he would just appear to the whole world. He goes back to his people, even to a dinner party with them. So that's one. I mean, this is as if he created the cure for cancer and then never went on a late night talk show to talk about it, but only to dinner with his family. This is the kind of love he has for his saints. We see this in the Lord's Supper. This is for his people to eat with them, to commune with them, to have fellowship with those that he has died to forgive and to reconcile to his Father. He comes near to his people. And then he's preparing them to do that which he has ordained for them. He has planned to spread the news of forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to the Father, not with shock and awe, but by shepherding 11 men that he's going to send out to tell others about it. And so Christ here is more concerned with the changing the course of their lives than of showing off. He's more concerned to deal with the sin of his disciples to shape them into his servants so they can serve him by proclaiming the gospel and calling all everywhere to repentance and belief. So I find this very striking. At the most significant event in the history of the world, this is not hyperbole, the resurrection is the most world-changing event in the history of the world. Nothing even comes close to comparing with the impact of Christ's resurrection throughout the world. It's just going to be 300 years after this that all of the Roman Empire is going to be Christianized top to bottom, inside and out. That nothing has radically shifted the course of the world in this. And that the way he's going to do it is the way that God typically does does it. By using regular people. But in order to be used by him, he's going to deal with their sin. He's going to tell them about the judgment of God. So I find it odd, striking, that the resurrected, glorified king of heaven and earth goes to dinner with his disciples. And rebukes their sin. Now, it's something that when at, at, at dinner here, he said to them, you're wrong for your unbelief and your hardness of heart. If you know what the disciples have been through, you might have had more patience with them, right? Their trusted leader, the one they followed for three years, the one that they themselves proclaimed out of their own mouths was the Christ, the promised Son of God. That suddenly, upon coming to Jerusalem, after the triumphal entry where they thought, it's on, he's going to win, he's going to bring the victory, that just two days later he's dead in the tomb. And that all of those who wanted him dead wanted them dead. And so they've been hiding out. You think that Jesus would have a little more patience with them, a little grace with them, and then... How many of you at Easter dinner will spend time rebuking the sin of the people seated around the table? It's just not what you do at dinner, or at breakfast or lunch for that matter. 
considered bad manners. And yet, so here's where we're very blind. We make much of the resurrection, but we refuse to make much of what caused him to go into death and to be raised, our own sin. And yet, that's the very thing that he deals with in his disciples. He won't allow us, he won't allow you to raise your hands and sing the glories of his resurrection without dealing with you where you have sin in your life. He won't allow them to do this in order to make great use of them. So what does he rebuke? He rebukes their unbelief. They had refused to believe the word that those, that he, of those that he had sent previous. He, they, they refused to believe Mary. Mary had seen the resurrected Christ. She went back and told them, the tomb's empty. I've seen him. He's alive. They wouldn't believe her words. Again, the two who had seen him on the road into the country go back and immediately tell him and they wouldn't believe their words. They were hard towards it. They had disbelief. They were hard-hearted and so unbelieving. And Christ, upon first appearing to them, first deals with their sin. Now, we live in a rather soft day. Are you aware of this? It's, of course, been told over and over again that the lack of discipline, say, by parents of their children is resulting a lot of this madness that if you go into any regular school, the lack of discipline and expectation of respect for the teachers or just doing normal, typical human things is no longer required. We lived in the softest of all days. Again, in all the soft because we refuse to deal with any wrong in the world. We see again in all of the elections, maybe especially among judges, how many judges or district attorneys no longer treat felonies as felonies. Either reduce them to misdemeanors or just let people walk out. We live in a crazy soft day because we think in our own pride and wisdom that the way to help people get better is to just let them be. That all they need is a little education. All they need is a little love and everything will be all right. But when we come to Christ, after His resurrection, we see something very different. He deals with their sin. He deals with the wickedness of their hearts. See, Christ will never leave you alone in your sin. He won't leave you to yourself. It's the good work of His love to bring to bear what He did on the cross specifically to your sin. He doesn't want you to be like so many who feel guilty for doing something wrong, but when the guilt wears off, you just go right back to it. He he doesn't want you to praise Him for His resurrection but not have it applied specifically to, the, to your life and where you are struggling with sin. He won't allow you to worship Him without being changed by Him. Because He wants to make use of you. Let me illustrate what I mean. He sends Mary first, as we said, to them and then two nameless disciples with the news that He's no longer dead but raised. You see that, right? You see the pattern here. He sends a messenger 
with the news, with the good news of his resurrection. They won't believe. He sends another. And they won't believe. And then he himself comes to them, rebukes their unbelief. And then he said to them, go into all the world. Proclaim what you've seen. Don't make movies. Don't do plays. Proclaim with words, with authority, that the Son of God was crucified, died, buried, and raised. Whoever believes you and testifies to their belief in baptism will be saved. Whoever does not believe your word, whoever rejects your testimony, will be condemned. So he's getting them ready for a great purpose. And they have to learn this lesson. The way that God brings the gospel to the sinful world is by the preaching of the gospel. That's it. God always uses these ordinary means that we consider utter foolishness, the preaching of a sinful preacher of the resurrection of Christ, and whoever believes is saved and whoever doesn't is condemned. And what had they just done? What had the disciples just done? Refuse to believe. Refuse to believe. So you see what's happening. Before they can be any use to Christ and bringing the gospel to the world, they must first deal with their own sin. This is always true. God uses us as we submit to Him. As our lives grow in holiness, so we're concerned about not just loving Him in word, but in life, we become of much greater use to Him. I'm not saying we ever attain to like sinlessness and He can't use you until you're sinless, but He can't use you if you're hard. He can't use you, He won't use you if you remain hardened against seeing your own sin. Now, He isn't just here tisking them. He isn't a nag. He's not going to bring up again and again and again their sin. He's forgiving them to make great use of them. Look at what He's going to send them out to do. Isn't it something that right after rebuking them for disbelieving the messengers He had sent, he, the next thing He says is, Hey, i got some good work for you. I've got a life of purpose for you. I want you to go out and proclaim to my world that I've been raised from the dead. And that's something. He doesn't give them like a three-year waiting period to make sure that they're really perfect. He rebukes their sin. He obviously has forgiven their sins. And now he says, go get them. Go. This is always true in the Bible. Over and over and over again, he deals with the sins of his people and then he makes great use of them. Think of Paul. We meet Paul in the early chapters of Acts persecuting Christ's people, condemning them to death. Christ appears and deals with his sin, rebukes him. The next thing we see is Paul being used of Christ mightily to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. Same thing with Abraham, Moses, all of them. The Bible is not at all ashamed to show the great sin of our heroes. Look at here. 
Wouldn't it be something to be in the Bible and be constantly shown for the wrong that you do? Think of Peter. You remember that very tender scene at the end of John where Peter says he's going to go fishing and a few other disciples come with him and they see Christ there preparing a meal. They go to him. Christ looks at Peter. How many times? You remember? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And we know it's noted that Peter was grieved in heart because Christ asked him three times. Christ is rebuking Peter for his unbelief, for his fear, for his lack of fidelity to him, of becoming a traitor, saying he didn't know Jesus three times. And what does Jesus say right after that? Go feed my sheep. You're of great use to me now, Peter. You've humbled yourself. You've owned your sin. I've forgiven you. Now you're of use to me, Peter. You're a humbled man. You're a dependent man. You're of use to me, Peter. Now go and feed my sheep. It's the exact same thing we see here. And so do you love Christ enough to not just make much of his resurrection, but to humble yourself in repentance over your sin? It's noted over and over in our day again, the lack of godly manliness. There's not enough godly men around. Well, men, are you repenting of your effeminacy? Are you learning to work hard and deal with your own sin? Are you committing yourself to the discipline, the simple disciplines of reading the Bible, of maybe bringing the Bible to your family on a regular basis and leading family devotions? Are you committing to loving your wife as a man, learning how to grow in tenderness for her? Are you going to be of use to Christ? Children, how about you? This is the world that God is giving you for you to do and whatever God calls you to, whatever gifts He's given you, will you be of use to Him? It just begins with the ordinary everyday things that you're dealing with. Are you repenting over your lack of obedience to your mom? Are you dealing with your sin? Are you coming to your Savior, crying out for His help in defeating your sin that you can be of more use to Him? So be, before you'll ever truly able to enjoy the glories of Christ's resurrection, you'll first have to deal with your stubborn and hard heart. And that's what Christ does. Let me, let me drive this home with one point. You'll notice here the disciples, the eleven, are eating together. Verse 14, afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. Now, just follow me here. What is one of the ways the Bible consistently calls God's people to show love as God's people for each other? To fulfill the command to love one another. Do you, do you know the repeated way that the Bible tangibly, feet on the ground, shows you, tells you to live out your life for Christ? To show your love for Him by loving each other. Do you know what that way is in the Bible? Over and over and over again. Hospitality. Eating together. It's constant. Abraham in Genesis 18 is held out as the highest model of good hospitality. Read it with detail if you want a good example of how to do hospitality. At the end of Romans, Paul, exhorting them to love one another, says 
right next to that in, Hebrew, in Romans 12, 13, seek to show hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 8, listen to this. Above all, keep wa- loving one another earnestly. How? Listen to this. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. <laughs> without grumbling. Be glad to be hospitable. Rejoice that you can open your house and invite others in. Above all, love one another. Show hospitality without grumbling. And so, throughout the Bible, we see this. If you ever had a wedding and the pastor, at the beginning as he's introducing what marriage is, will often say something like, Christ showed the great importance of marriage by performing his first miracle at a wedding. He ordains, he he dignifies the goodness of marriage by showing up at a wedding ceremony feast to show the goodness of marriage. In the same way, where does Christ show up first and reveal himself to the disciples? At a meal together. Doesn't that ordain the goodness of eating together as God's people? So how's your hospitality game? How's your loving one another, showing hospitality without grumbling game? We lament that we live in a culture that's as lonely as any people on earth has ever been. We are so lonely. We're so isolated. And Christians are different. I mean, we're different. We gather here. Every Sunday, you, many of you come on Wednesdays to be together. Some of you, about half of you, join in neighborhood small groups. But how many of us regularly and joyfully open our homes and hearts to each other for nothing but just a simple meal? Now, I'm not raising this issue mainly to rebuke your lack of hospitality. And I don't mean to say that none of you do this. I think this is something our church does pretty well. But not as well as we could. But I'm not bringing it up just for the issue of hospitality. But to ask you to remember, you can't keep Christ's resurrection at arm's length. It's not a museum piece to be admired but forgotten. It's not a museum piece that shouldn't be personally applied to you. Like Christ goes to the dinner with the eleven after he's been raised to rebuke their sin and help them to become more wholehearted Christ followers that could be of use to him. He gets really specific with their sin. It's not just a resurrection way out there. It's a resurrection that changes them right in their lives, right where they need it most. So many, way too many Christians do this. Jesus is Lord. But he's not Lord of anything in their life, really. John Owen says that there are many who claim to be saved by Christ, but won't be ruled by Christ and shall not be saved by him at all. Let me say that again since I stumbled over it so badly. John Owen says that many claim to be saved by Christ, but refuse to be ruled by Christ, and so are not saved by him at all. This is a great danger on Easter. We come and make much of his resurrected glory, but that resurrection really has no impact on our lives. Like Being a Christian is not mere mental ascent to doctrinal stuff. It's a life. It's to be your entire life. This might sound cheesy, but 
If Christ were coming to your Easter dinner, what would he rebuke in you? Can you consider that? I've said this before, and I'll say it many times again, I'm sure. You wouldn't want Christ at dinner. (laughs) You wouldn't want him there at all. Because he wouldn't talk about the neighbors. Husband, he, he wouldn't listen to you whine about your wife. Or vice versa. Parents, he, he wouldn't entertain you grumbling about your kids. You know what he would do? He'd rebuke your sin. He'd deal with you. This is exactly what he's doing. He deals with his disciple sinner. I brought up hospitality and sharing meal because I think that's an area that we could grow in. Maybe that's the area. Maybe that's the one area Christ would have you consider becoming obedient to him in. I'm not just talking over here either. What is it? Where is it? Are you going to apply the power of the resurrection to overcome your sin? You know, sometimes what God does is he'll give you over to a particularly difficult sin to draw your attention to another sin that you've been co- become content with in your life. He'll allow something maybe more embarrassing, more public to be seen in you in order to deal with something that's more private but that you are just continuing on in. Where is that for you? And notice what else he says. That what we're dealing with here is of eternal significance. Can you believe that at his resurrection, at this first meal, he talks about God as judge? Isn't that... I mean, this is the one thing that we refuse to believe anymore in the American Christian church. That God is judge. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. Do you believe that? Let me ask you, are you the kind of Christian who wants like Jesus to be this amazing example of love? He's so accepting and affirming and gentle and lowly, but you refuse anymore to believe that God is judge and that there is a hell. And that he will send those who refuse his son there forever. If you are, then that is, you are not a Christian. You cannot have one without the other. Why did Christ die? What was he suffering on the cross? The wrath of God and judgment for our sin. And all who are found in Christ will be welcomed into eternal life with him because Christ faced the wrath of God and took it from you. And all who are without Christ will be condemned. Jesus would not be admitted to any college because the Department of Equity and Inclusion would see right away that he's harsh. Now, the crazy thing is in our world today, especially with Christians, is that we refuse to let God be judged, but all we are is judgmental. We divide with each other based on how we school our children. 
We look down on those who decide differently than you do. We're so judgmental. We have parents who won't let their kids eat sugar and parents who do let their kids eat sugar and we can't eat together. You've got the mega people and the never Trump people and they despise each other. So judgmental. All we do is judge, but we won't let God judge. All we do is judge, but God can't judge. But God will judge us. And Christ loves his people enough to tell them at the dinner table. I wonder if you love this Jesus. Have you fashioned a Jesus in your own, according to your own tastes? Is Jesus allowed to be Jesus? Or do you have to make him more palatable? Uh, This is the love of God to rebuke our sin. This is the love of God to tell us of his coming judgment. But we want an offenseless resurrection, don't we? We want an Easter without any mention of sin. We want an Easter without any mention of judgment. We don't want to invite family members to hear the indignity of Christ rebuking unbelief or the unacceptable social of God as judge. We want the pink and the eggs and the bunnies and the baskets and the pretty dresses, but not a resurrected Lord who rebukes our sin at the dinner table. But isn't it good of God to pop our little balloons? Isn't it good of Him? Why is He doing this for the disciples? To make great use of them. What a delight that these men are now sent into the world to proclaim the gospel and that God makes powerful use of them. Isn't that what he does with us? This isn't about him beating you down and reminding you of how worthless of a person you are and then just leaving you there, but about raising you up and making great use of you to resurrect you. Don't you want to be useful? If you're like, 15 or 18 or 22 and you're just looking at how you're going to be useful in this world and what you're going to do. You're making plans for it. You're preparing yourself for it. You must always begin with repentance of your sins. You must always begin constantly with the need of coming to Christ truly and honestly. Humbling yourself before Him. He will not use a proud person. But He will make use of those who come with Humility and repentance to Him. So you have good work. He has even ordained good works for us. But that does not preclude our need to come to Him humbly. Genuinely. Truly. As He is. As He's shown Himself to be here. So may God give us the grace to see that. To not be in Nevada a hype fest of Jesus' resurrection, but leave unchanged. Let's not do that on Easter. Let's give him the dignity and honor to obey him as Lord who was raised from the dead. Let's ask his help. Let's pray. Father, help us now. May we not be those who sing great songs of his resurrection, adore it, make a big show of it, but leave unchanged. Leave without humility. Leave without coming to you and pleading and saying, have mercy on us. We're great sinners. To not 
forego the hard work of submitting ourselves in all that we are to you for your glory, that we might be greatly used by you. And so God, please have your way in us in this. Give us faith to come to you with our sin and then to be eager to be used greatly of you. And so God, please help us now to apply truly and really in those areas of our life that we know are not being submitted to you because your son was crucified, did die, was buried, and was resurrected, Lord, over all, and that you are more than willing to accept all those who humble yourselves before you. And so God, help us now. In Jesus' name, amen.